15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's all about astronomy, space science and all sorts of stuff. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about today because it's episode 280 and because of that we're going to dedicate it entirely to audience questions. So thank you for sending them in. We do love to hear from you and we've got uh, questions from all over the world today which is fantastic. It's lovely to have a global audience. I am your host, Andrew Dunkley, and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. How are you doing, Andrew? <laughs> I'm doing as well as I can. <laughs> Very good. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm slightly distracted because I've just realised that um, this is coming to you not via the normal microphone, uh, and I don't know why, because the normal microphone oh. is plugged is. Uh, the normal microphone's plugged in. Never mind. It's all right. Onwards and upwards. You can obviously hear me. Yes, I can. We'll, we'll just use some of that magic stuff to... To tweak uh, it later. Fix it up. But it means I can right. take these out. Take the head Oh, okay. Because it's coming through the loudspeaker. There you are. All right. Now, we've got uh, questions today. Uh, we're going to sort of mix up the audio and the um, text questions. Uh, so uh, John wants to talk about gravitational waves. Uh, Brett wants to talk about that mystery signal uh, we've mentioned before, the James Webb, te Webb's, uh, James Webb telescopes on the agenda, space junk, uh, origin of universes is an interesting question. Uh, we'll also be uh, looking at gravitons and dark energy. But before we do all that, I thought you'd like to hear this one, Fred. It's just an email. It's not a question. It comes from Michael. Hello, Professor Fred. While listening to the most recent episode, I heard you mention that you had, early in your career, done work on the orbit of the Psyche asteroid. My daughter works for JPL as a systems engineer and is currently assigned to NASA's Project Psyche. She's in good company then. Best regards, Michael. Isn't that lovely? It's lovely. I think it actually means I'm in good company, not she's in Oh, well, you, that, that may well be the case, yes. Um, yeah. I, I actually saw something the other day about um, the asteroid Psyche, and they said it would uh, it has enough gold in it to make every person on Earth a billionaire. <laughs> but if that were to happen, then it wouldn't be, you know, the price of gold would plummet, I imagine. It would, yeah. Yes, it's, yeah. it's probably a, a metal asteroid, or mostly metal, highly metallic, if not mm -hmm. purely metallic. Indeed it is. Uh, a couple of other things. When I was studying it, all it was was a dot moving in the sky. Nobody <laughs> knew what it was. It's a bigger dot now. <laughs> uh, the other couple of things we needed to talk about, um, we got a, a, an audio, not question, but um, observation from Peter on the Gold Coast the other day because he noticed, and a few other people have noticed over many episodes, that you, um, you do cough occasionally. And he thought maybe you should change your milk and try A2. <laughs> so I did. And? Yeah, Peter, I've I've done what you advised, and um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm coughing. Yeah. No, no, we'll wait and see. And um, Peter Verweyen, another Peter, uh, is someone you want to uh, shout out to. Yeah, hello, Peter. Um, one of our regular uh, listeners and maybe even a watcher as well, a former colleague of mine at Siding Spring Observatory, now doing his PhD on MOND, the Modified Newtonian Dynamics uh, Theory, uh, which is an alternative to the idea of dark matter. And 
you know, we follow uh, Peter's research with interest because you never know. One day, the Mon theory might turn out to be right. But Peter was very generous uh, in his congratulations on our success at reaching a million downloads a year. Uh, and um, so, thank you, Peter. And I'll get around to answering your email when I can. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Uh, without further ado, let's go to our first question. This comes from John in the UK. Hi, guys. It's John here from uh, Burnley, northwest of England. I've uh, been listening for a while now. Uh, I think your podcasts are fantastic. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, my question is regarding the gravitational waves that you spoke about last week and the LIGO experiments. How do you tell where they come from? in which direction do they uh, appear to be coming from and do they come through the earth as well um obviously normal telescopes you can't see through the earth so is that something that can happen um and obviously how far away are they and how do you detect that thank you guys yeah thanks john lovely accent by the way uh, it's really good <laughs> can do that better than you can. Hi. Yeah, I'm sure you can. And it, and I should say that um, Burnley, actually it was always Burnley uh, when among oh. my family, um, is just the other side of Pendle Hill uh, in Lancashire from the Watson family seat, uh, which is Clitheroe. That's uh, where all my, a lot of my ancestors came from. Clitheroe is just over the hill from Burnley. So very close to my heart. John, thank you for your question. Well, what was the question again? No, it's all right. Well, where do they where do they come from? How do we know where they come from? What direction? Um, I'm just, my, my mind's just on those lovely parts of uh, of, of East Lancashire. Uh, where, well, okay, it's a really gr great question which we've touched on before, but not really analysed in detail. Uh, and um, it's all about having multiple detectors. So the original LIGO. Uh, has, uh, which is the laser interferometer gravitational wave detector, uh, is actually two of these instruments. Remember, they're four kilometer long tubes, uh, um, two pairs of them placed at right angles to each other with laser beams bouncing up and down them. Um, <laughs> there's a picture of one of them in this book that you've heard of before, Andrew. Starts from the space space. I can never remember the damn title of this book. You're going well, Fred. I do talk about uh, gravitational wave detectors, and I actually sketched one in a cartoon. Uh, so, But there are two of them, uh, the LIGO detectors, and they're at opposite corners of the United States, so they're separated by 3,000 kilometres. Um, and that is partly to eliminate any kind of terrestrial disturbances like earthquakes or trains going past, because remember these things are highly sensitive to vibrations. Mm -hmm. That's what they're detecting. They're actually vi detecting vibrations in space. So they need to eliminate other things. So having two uh, does that, but also uh, having two gives you an idea at least of what direction the gravitational waves are coming from because we know they travel at the speed of light. And so one of these detectors picks up the gravitational wave usually uh, picks up the gravitational wave before the other and get and measuring the, the the length of time the time delay between them gives you at least a first estimate of of the kind of direction in in as, in as far as whether it's a northern or southern hemisphere for example yeah. but then you add to that uh, virgo which is the italian gravitational wave detector 
in Italy. And that gives you another point uh, uh, to let you triangulate where these things are from. There's a new one coming online. I don't think it's operational yet, Kagra in Japan. And as you build up more of these detectors, you're able to triangulate and get a better estimate of where they actually come from. Mm, interesting. It, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it's it's also interesting that they seem to be putting these things in high earthquake zones. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, just to make it hard for themselves. Yeah. Indeed. So, But, but uh, the, the, the other thing is that having multiple detectors, so every gravitational wave signal has a really characteristic fingerprint, if I can put it that way. It's the mm -hmm. combination of the way the frequency changes, the frequency of the vibration in the wave, uh, and how its amplitude changes, the amount of the vibration, and the sort of timescale over, over which all that happens. That's the signature that you're going to get identically in each of those detectors. That's how you know that it's a real phenomenon uh, and um, it's by you know what what you can do then is is slide them all together in in software uh, and that gives you um, a really good estimate of where they've come from and that you're looking at a real signal rather than an earthquake um, so uh, it's also that characteristic shape that gives you the details that we're hearing uh, about gravitational waves the the, the, the identity of the source of the gravitational waves, usually colliding black holes or neutron stars, and the distance as well, which comes from essentially the strength of the signal, uh, but also some of the um, so, so, uh, some of the aspects of the the wave itself. So mm. it's all that is teased out of this fleeting vibration that comes from space, just something that wobbles uh, the mirrors of the detector slightly, and then allows you to deduce all this incredible information from it. So it's now, he also asked uh, if a gravitational wave goes through Earth or does it bounce off when it hits us? No, straight through. Um, it's Straight through. It's, it's, um, it's space itself that's vibrating. Of course, the Earth sits in space. So, Okay. All right. Well, that prompts a question. Uh, we, we got two questions from Brett in Pennsylvania, and one of them was gravitational wave related. He wanted to know what would happen if you were very close to the source of a gravitational wave. So if you were nearby when two neutron stars collided or something, what would happen to you then? Uh, yeah, it would be well, the amplitude of the waves would be very high then, um, and so you, you would. It, it could well be that you're. You're spaghettified in the same way as you are with a, a black hole. If the you know if the amplitude is enough, um, it, uh, it's quite it's quite right that um, uh, the intensity of the waves falls away. It's a, an inverse square law. Um, actually, that might not be true. It's not. I don't think it is an inverse square law. I need to check that again. But it, it falls off very rapidly with distance from uh, from the um, source of the waves. So don't get too close. Don't get too close. That's right. Yeah, I, I actually did write about that in my sci-fi book, The Tyrannian Enigma. But uh, in my book, um, the the spaceship was um, hurled along by the wave, and oh, it surfed yeah. it, surfed the wave. Yeah, oh, lovely, it surfed, surfed the wave, wave. Yeah. <laughs> but not very, not very elegantly, I might add. <laughs> Um, all right, so we've covered uh, John uh, with his question about gravitational waves and, and I sort of dovetailed into Brett from Pennsylvania. Uh, and thanks for your question, John. So let's move on to Brett's other question. He said, hi, friends, I recently read about an object 
ASCAP J173608.2-321635. Damn it, that's my email password. Anyway, uh, that object is near the centre of our galaxy uh, and that produces odd, unpredictable radio signals. Seems nobody knows for sure what is creating them. My question is for both of you, what do you think the signal is and what would you like it to turn out to be? Thanks, guys, for everything you teach. Love the show. Thanks, Brett. And I would like it to be Talkback Radio. And I think it's Talkback Radio because we could learn a lot from Talkback Radio. It would all be garbage. But it, um, you know, it could give us an insight into what's going on in other parts of the, the galaxy. To be honest, I've got no idea what to consider. I would suspect it's some kind of natural phenomenon that we are yet to identify. But I think Fred's better positioned to, uh, to answer that one. Well, it, yes, that's right. It's, um, it is uh, a, a, an unidentified celestial or a type of... Unidentified, an unidentified type of celestial object. Let's get it right. Um, yeah. So, uh, a report quite recently, um, which made the headlines throughout the world, uh, that I'm reading here from the University of Sydney's press release, because uh, the astronomers who worked on this, and it was using ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, that giant array of dishes in. Uh, the Murchison region of Western Australia, which is a pathfinder for the Square Kilometre Array, um, and so uh, that uh, you know what it what is um, fascinating about this is that astronomers at the moment really don't know what's causing it, and wonder if what we're seeing is the effect uh, or uh, you know evidence of a completely new type of celestial object. Um, <clears throat> Can I quote from one of the authors of, uh, of the, the paper, a, a, a PhD student? Uh, sure. Ziteng Wang, I think is his name, uh, is the lead author of the uh, study and a PhD student in the School of Physics at the University of Sydney, uh, where, by the way, I've got an honorary position, which is delightful. Um, and what he says is the strangest property of this new signal is that it has a very high polarization. Now, we're, we're, many of us are familiar with light being polarized because we wear polarizing sunglasses, but radio waves mm -hmm. can be polarized as well. Uh, this means its light oscillates in only one direction, but that direction rotates with time. Uh, and uh, what he goes on to say is the brightness of the object also varies dramatically by a factor of 100 and the signal switches on and off apparently at random. We've never seen anything like it. And that's it. <laughs> wow. Um, what would you like it to be, Fred? Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. What I'd, what I'd like um, is for this to be something that sheds light on one of the other big mysteries, like dark matter. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I think it's too much to hope that it's uh, and, it, and it's got the wrong characteristics for it to be evidence of inter, um, of interstellar intelligence. Uh, I think it might, though. In, in in which case, my talkback radio theory still holds up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not really going there. I don't think. I mean, we, you know, <laughs> I, I think we pride ourselves, Andrew, on having um, a very high quality of talkback on uh, on space nuts. One would hope so. Yeah, we hope so. So, yeah, um, it would be great if it was something that, uh, as it is, as often happens, and this has happened with the fast radio bursts, that it's a mystery as to what 
causes them. We think we've got some idea of what it is now, uh, flares on magnetars, but the just the observations of those fast radio bursts actually opened up uh, some new research in <clears throat> the density of material in intergalactic space, a fantastic thing. So maybe uh, this object, uh, whose name I'm not going to recite again uh, because it's your phone number, uh, that, that object might also give us some new insights. It is coming from the centre of our galaxy, so uh, that's an interesting place which... Uh, still has a lot to, to tell us. Uh, it's actually an area of the sky that I studied back in the 1970s, looking at okay. bog-standard variable stars rather than weird exotic objects that emit polarised radio radiation. Mm. Uh, so the bottom line is, Brett, uh, Dunno. Watch this space, I think. Yeah, D-U-N-N-O, by the way. That's how you spell Dunno. Um, but thanks for your question. A very quick one to finish off this segment uh, from Walter. Hello, Andrew and Fred. I'm in Springfield, Vermont. Uh, do you know how long after launch the Webb telescope will unfurl, the James Webb telescope, which I believe the launch has been put back to the end of next year now? Uh, does it um, do so before it reaches its parking spot or only after? Love you, Walter. Oh, love you too, Walter. Thank you. Um, do you. Do you know the answer to that one, Fred? Uh, yes, <clears throat> there's a really good site uh, that's the webtelescope.org website, and it's got mission and launch quick facts on it, and that's got all this information. It still says launch schedule for December 2021 there, though. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure I heard in the news that it had been pushed back. Um, I'll be sorry to hear that if it has. but um, Now I need to double-check. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the answer is it takes about a month. Uh, one of the questions in this is how long does it take for Webb to reach its orbit? Webb is designed to travel for about a month to reach its orbit at the second Sun-Earth Lagrange point, L2, 1.5 million kilometres from Earth. There you go, 940,000 miles. Uh, yes, I, I see a headline here. James Webb Telescope launch delayed again to oh, maybe December 22 rather than the year 2022. Okay, because it was Dece yeah. There you go. It was December eighteenth. That was the okay. So it's only a few days, not a year. Yeah, that sounds more. When I saw twenty two, I assumed it was the year twenty twenty two. Ah dear. See, it pays to be a really good journalist in my job. <laughs> well, at least you check your facts. It's just you do it after the. Yeah, I did it after after I said it. <laughs> anyway, please accept my correction. I recommend that uh, that website, Mission and Launch Quick Facts. <laughs> Mm, all right, very good. Uh, there you go, Walter. Thank you. And uh, you are listening to Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, and he's Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. Stay here, also. Space Nuts. And thanks for joining us. If you'd like to become a patron, don't forget you can do that uh, just by visiting our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io and click on the supporter tab. As a patron, you'll be putting a few dollars in our bucket every month uh, to keep us up and running, which we certainly appreciate. And uh, don't forget the 30-day trial. Uh, on Patreon and uh, Supercast. Uh, you can you can test it, see if you like it. If you do, that's great. If you don't, you can dip out. That's that's fine as well. But you can find out all about it uh, on our website. There are other ways of supporting us as well. You can send us love letters like Walter did or you can um, make a one-off donation through um, 
whatever channel you choose. It'll all be there on our uh, website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io if you'd like to become a patron. We appreciate it, but it is not mandatory as we continually say. Now, Fred, let's go to our next question. I think this one comes from Sean in the United States. Hi, Andrew and Professor Watson. This is Sean from Charleston, South Carolina, US, again, talking about space junk. The Russians just launched a killer missile to take out a target satellite in fairly low Earth orbit and created a boatload of space junk. The Chinese also launched a missile a few years back and took out an old uh, weather satellite, adding more junk. So between all the junk these two countries have. How do we stop them from doing it? Uh, you know, I don't know. The UN, the people have to get together because they're ruining the Earth's population in space, and which isn't theirs. So that's my question. It's kind of technical. I mean, political too, I guess. Thanks a lot. I love your show. I listen to it all the time. You guys are great. Thanks. Thank you, Sean. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, you raise a very complex issue because it's there's no simple answer to it. And it seems, uh, particularly with the recent Russian missile test, that um, uh, two different organizations in Russia weren't talking to each other, the space agency and the military. And there were two Russian cosmonauts on the ISS, which was obviously... Uh, perceived to be under threat as a consequence of the space junk that was created by that uh, anti-satellite missile firing. Uh, and it's not just China and Russia. I mean, just about every country that's put something into space is responsible for the a lot of the junk that's out there. So it's a, it's a wider problem than that. But I see where you're coming from in terms of missile tests creating massive amounts of debris in a very, very short period of time. And yeah, how, how do we stop it? Um, negotiation, I suppose. Fred, what do you think? Well, um, first of all, it's not just the Chinese and the Russians who've done that. The Indians did, and so did the Americans. Uh-huh. So, you know, as you said, everybody's kind of responsible. Um, but uh, it does it does actually contravene uh, the, the principles of the International Space Treaty uh, of 1967, which says that you shouldn't do things in space that are detrimental to to others, and of mm. course, by creating space junk, you're 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 doing that. You're p putting a huge risk up there for not just you know human occupied spacecraft, but but robotic ones as well. Um, however, <clears throat> so um, in fact, tomorrow, Andrew, I'm leading a discussion about satellite constellations in the. The government department I work in as, a, as an information thing. And as part of that, um, I've been talking with a very eminent space lawyer here in Australia, uh, Cassandra Steer of the Australian National University. Uh, and her take on this is that the signs are promising for some sort of um, UN 
mandated treaty that will stop this happening because everybody realizes it's it's dumb uh, and that the risks are great and um cassandra's got a, her ear much closer to the ground on issues of uh, space law than i have and it was quite um encouraging to see her comments about that so uh yeah exactly as sean said it's a it's a difficult problem uh, ultimately of course you've got Kessler syndrome uh, hanging over us with uh, the possibility that you might make space completely unusable uh, yeah. by, by this cascade of, of collisions. Uh, and so um, the hope is uh, that perhaps before too long, maybe you and I, Andrew, will be talking about some new international agreement, uh, which comes from the, the UN body, the UNUSA, the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, uh, it will be great to be able to report on that. Uh, so, fingers crossed, uh, the, the signs seem to be good. Yeah, I, I suppose the the other question is, you mentioned that it is actually a contravening, uh, contravenes the, the current treaty. What's the penalty? I mean, obviously, they, there's nothing much you can do. It's a gentleman's agreement. Well, yes, that's right. Uh, it, it, in many ways, uh, in fact, Cassandra, um, she, she actually recorded a segment for us for this discussion because she couldn't make it. But um, she she did talk about uh, the treaty in detail. And it, it, it is that sort of agreement, but it it underpins a lot of more detailed space law. And so I guess what you've got to do is build up the details that are based on the on the treaty, uh, you know the detailed legislation, uh, and and make it international. That I think is the trick. <laughs> mm. So yeah, but really interesting question. Something very interesting, but um, I think I, I think um, things move very slowly in this particular area of legislation. So it might be five years or so before we see anything. Yes, and and you're talking about. Um organizations within governments that don't always see eye to eye and uh, you know you, you risk diplomatic issues if you point the finger um, I mean the United States was pretty heavy in its uh, criticism of, of Russia over this latest test but as you said they've done it before as well um, I don't know I, I, I don't know what the solution is hopefully yes a new agreement and a new approach to it will rekindle the the, the the attitude to be in a more positive and cooperative direction. Yeah, it's what you said at the beginning, Andrew, it's negotiation. That's, yeah. that's what we need, yeah. Yeah, I, I truly believe everything can be negotiated. It's just sometimes we're very quick to do something before the negotiation process, and that's where things come unstuck, I suppose. Uh, okay, uh, Sean, thank you. Uh, good to hear from you. And now we've got a question, a text question from William. Uh, what I know about our universe is that stars come out at night, just like my teeth. <laughs> my question is, is it possible that our universe originated from a black hole and that other universes were created in the same way? Uh, since we've not discovered other life in this universe so far, once life ends here, our universe will be dead. So sad. Yes, I agree with that, William. Interesting observation. Well, hopefully we will find life beyond Earth, um, whether it's intelligent life or not. Uh, that's a giant question mark. But uh, what about the idea of uh, the universe uh, being created out of a black hole and other universes thereby? Yeah, so that's um, uh, one of the 
I suppose, one of the dominant theories about multiverses, <clears throat> multiple universes. Um, and I think it originates with Roger Penrose, the uh, well-known mathematician, in fact, Nobel Prize winning mathematician. Mm. Um, interestingly, tonight uh, I'll be, I'll only be emceeing it, but um, we have something here in Australia called the Alison Levick Lecture, uh, which has been held by the um, what used to be the Anglo-Australian Observatory every year since 2021. Um, it's a, a public lecture given by um, a speaker of some eminence, and this evening's lecture will be given by Professor Catherine Haymans, who's the Astronomer Royal for Scotland. Uh, now, her specialty is exactly this, and her talk... Uh, tonight is entitled Mysteries of the Multiverse. Now, by the time this podcast goes to air, that will be in the past. However, um, it is possible for people to download it and have a listen uh, because we're going to record it. Uh, and if you look for Alison Levick Lecture, uh, it's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-L-E-V-I-C-K Lecture, uh, I'm sure you'll find it. It's on the, it will be on the Macquarie University website. Uh, so have a look for that. Uh, and I, 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 the reason why I'm being cagey is that I'm hoping to learn a lot more about current thinking on the multiverse um, than I've, um, you know, than I've uh, read already. So uh, it would be good to hear, Catherine. Yeah, I, I suppose um, this is this is the way my brain works. We've learned that there are multiple planets in our solar system. We've learned that there are multiple solar systems in other parts of the galaxy. Uh, we now think we've discovered other planets in other galaxies. It stands to reason that with multiple planets, multiple solar systems, multiple galaxies, multiple universes. Um, yeah, maybe. The trouble is... There's a definition problem there because yeah. universe means everything we can ever observe or or understand, uh, and so the idea of multiple universes is a bit contradictory. But it's one that certainly um, you know is envisaged, and I guess the normal way that people think of multiple universes is by invoking additional dimensions. So you've got mm. you know. Uh, some higher dimensional space in which these universes sit. Uh, that's the sort of thing I'm hoping we might uh, hear from Catherine tonight. We'll see. Okay. So if you'd like to uh, catch up with that lecture, uh, you could probably download it now uh, through the Macquarie University website. The Alison Levick Lecture is what you'd be looking for. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space nuts. All right, Fred, uh, we've, uh, because it's episode 280, we're uh, committing it all to a coffin, uh, to questions. And uh, our next question comes from uh, another part of the world you're very familiar with. This is Barry from Fife. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Fred. Uh, this is Barry with another question from the East Nuka Fife in Scotland. Uh, Fred, a couple of times recently I've heard you mention uh, the possibility that a hypothetical graviton particle might be responsible for gravity. And I can't get my head around this. I don't see how that fits in with Einstein's theory and the description of gravity as a, a distortion of space-time. I actually looked up a couple of articles online, and uh, when they started taking me deep into quantum theory and string theory, I just had to give up. And I was wondering if there's any way you could possibly give us an idiot's guide to how this graviton might actually work. Thanks a lot. Bye. 
Uh, dear. Uh, he opened the door on that one. Uh, Fred is just the person to give you an idiot's guide to, <laughs> to Gravitons. Uh, to be honest, though, Gravitons really um, put a lot of pressure on Fred, so um, it really weighs him down. Can I do any more really lame dad jokes or is that enough? <laughs> uh, I'm sure you can do better than that, Andrew. <laughs> no, I can't. No, no I can't. Dear, oh, dear. It's a good question, though. It's a great question. It's always good to hear from the East Nuke of Fife as well, which is very, very close to my heart, as you know, not just because one of my daughters lives not very far from there in Dunfermline. Uh, I spent a lot of my life in St Andrews. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it it is hard to get your head around this. Um, and the the perhaps the way to think of it is to... Um, Go back to the you know the the idea that we know that fundamental particles can be both or are both waves and particles. They've got this dual characteristic, uh, which is why light, for example, exhibits characteristics that tell you it's a wave, but also others that tell you it's a particle. Not only that, it tells you it's a particle that can be in two places at the same time. So it's uh, it's really. Um, that dichotomy is present throughout the whole of fundamental physics. Now, the force particles, uh, like the photon, uh, the the gluon, which carries the strong nuclear force, the uh, Z and W bosons, which carry the weak nuclear force, they are particles that uh, that they're sort of perception on a macroscopic level, in other words, the way you know we see things on the big scale, leads us to, to see them as a force. Um, and that's how Newton, certainly how Newton uh, perceived gravity. Uh, it, was, it was Einstein who said, actually, it's not a force, it's a distortion of space. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, the force analogy works incredibly well. It works so well that we, we don't really need to use relativity uh, uh, until you start dealing with extreme gravitation and velocities. Uh, so uh, it's it, it, you've still got this dichotomy um, um, because we know that these forces are carried by fundamental particles, but uh, we, we perceive them as forces. Um, and in, in many ways, the graviton is a little bit like another of these force fields, which is or force field particles, which is the Higgs boson, um, because the Higgs boson is that particle that gives other particles the property of mass. But it was first recognised by the idea that there was something called the Higgs field. This is what Peter Higgs uh, deduced back in the 1960s, that there's this mm. field that um, permeates space that gives particles the property of mass. And wherever you've got a field, you've got to have, uh, you've got to have particles to carry it on the subatomic level. And the same is true with gravitation. Gravitation is a, is a, is a field, even though we recognise it as a, as, as a distortion of space um, and time, by the way. Uh, but uh, be, being a field, it needs to be carried by a particle. The graviton is the hypothetical particle that will do that, but it has not yet been discovered. It's, it, it has 
you know, that none of the experiments that have been done with particle accelerators have yet seen anything that could be the graviton. And in fact, the, the, the properties of a graviton, uh, and, and I suspect this is what Barry ran into when he started dig, digging deep in, into this, because it's highly quantum mechanical. Uh, but the properties of a graviton are actually, um, you know, they're, they're, they're well understood. Um, uh, let me just... Let me just uh, refer, if I may, to there's a very good entry on this on, on Wikipedia, but it is highly technical because of quantum mechanics. Uh, yeah. But the, the last sentence of the introduction says, this result suggests that if a massless spin to particle is discovered, it must be the graviton. So its properties are well understood, but we haven't found it yet. Um, yeah. It's one of the curiosities of, of you know, particle physics research. Mm. I don't know whether that helps Barry with the dichotomy. Um, maybe the way to think of it is that, you know, at some really fundamental level, there are these particles, but we see them as something else. We see them as either a force or a distortion of space-time, uh, uh, which is Einstein's relativity theory. Yeah. I, well, we know there are photons. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we, I'm guessing that we are assuming dark matter is some sort of particle as well or created by or carried by some sort of particle. Uh, it, it looks like particle physics is going to probably be the answer to a lot of these mysteries. It's just we're, we're really only in the early stages of really delving into this stuff. Yeah, that, well, that's right. <laughs> We've only been doing it for 100 years. Yeah, it's not long. And it's hard. It is really hard uh, to understand what's going on with all these things. Well, it's 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 certainly uh, uh, it's a needle in a haystack, but the haystack's as big as the universe, and the needle's uh, as small as a as a photon. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. Uh, Barry, lovely to hear from you. Love the accent. I know, I know, I know. You're going to say you don't have an accent. I have an accent. I've used that joke before. Um, but, yeah, lovely to hear from you. Now, let us move on. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, if you are into social media. Uh, don't forget to uh, join our Facebook page. Just do a search for Space Nuts Podcast on Facebook and you'll you'll find our Facebook page, our official Facebook page, and we've got a lot of followers there. But uh, we have a listener-generated Facebook page as well called the Space Nuts Podcast Group. So you can join that one as well. There's around 2,200 people who uh, are following that page and it's where you can get together and talk to each other as Space Nuts listeners and, uh, yeah, it, it's very, very active. So um, please uh, do so. And I'm pleased to announce that we now have an Instagram page, an official Instagram page. So if you have uh, Instagram, which is basically just another version of Facebook on a different platform, uh, spacenuts.io is the, um, the name of our Instagram page. So uh, if you'd like to join in with that, We'll be putting a lot of material on Instagram as well. So um, took us a while, and, and thanks to Marie Claire in uh, the United States, whether she's in New York or Miami at the moment, I'm not sure, was uh, her idea that we should move onto that platform, and we did it. So spacenuts.io if you want to join us on Instagram. We have one more question left, Fred, and this one comes from Michael Blanchett. 
Uh, no relation to Kate, I suspect. Uh, I just listened to episode 120. He's a little bit behind. Uh, and you guys stated that if you had two steel plates in a vacuum of space, space would push the plates together. So if we also know that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, would it be safe to say it's dark matter, uh, dark energy, because it would be pushing empty space out as well, if that makes sense. Uh, also, your podcast is fantastically awesome. I don't think we've been called fa fantastically awesome before. We've been called a few other things that we can't repeat on air. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah, that's a big question, though. It is. And, I'm, yeah, you know, the, the bottom line is that the effects of this force are well understood. And even when you, when you take them into account, you've still got the problem of dark energy. Uh, it's, it's not understood at the quantum level. Um, it's, it's a fairly familiar saying, I checked this recently, but, uh, if you, if you think of dark energy as a quantum physics process and make a few assumptions, you get an answer that says that dark energy is 10 to the power 120 times more than what we actually physically observe. So the physics, you know, are not well understood of dark of dark energy. The physics of the Casimir effect are, however, uh, it is. Uh, this is what um, I think we were talking about in episode 120, uh, yeah. named after a Dutch physicist, uh, Hendrik Casimir, who actually made a prediction that this should happen in back in 1948, uh, and it was, uh, in fact, almost 50 years later, 1997, that it was quantitatively measured. Uh, the force was measured um, uh, in uh, in a laboratory, uh, got some uh, very close to, to what uh, Casimir's prediction was uh, in the early days. So it's, once again, it's all about quantum physics because it's the vacuum fluctuations in space uh, that uh, push together uh, these plates. Um, so I'm not even sure whether there would be a reaction uh, because the moving of the plates, I think, is a reaction to the vacuum fluctuations themselves. Uh, so, uh, or the force on the plates is the response to the vacuum fluctuations. So um, I, I think um, dark matter theorists have come to the conclusion that it, that it doesn't work. Could be the dark side of the force. <laughs> that could be it. Uh, and um, while well, the force is always with you as well, when it's <laughs> if you're in a vacuum, they weren't far off, you know. With the, I know it's science fiction, but <laughs> yeah, oh, it's... sometimes they glance the nail. They do. Oh, what a lovely way of putting it, Andrew. Mm. Mm. Glance the nail. I like that very much. Glance the I have nail. Have you used that in something? Yeah. Have you used it in one of your books? No. Uh, no. No, I haven't. You so I'll give that one to you. Thank you. <laughs> for a small fee. No, not a problem. Not a problem at all. Okay. Did we finish that question? I, I'm afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's. Uh, it is. Uh, uh, you know the the people who are working on on dark energy theory are extremely competent physicists um, and uh, they uh, really understand well how these how these microscopic phenomena, if I can put it that way, like the Casimir effect work. So it, it, I suspect, I mean, it, that, you know, that, that sort of raises perhaps a bigger question. Uh, are they... When we do work out what dark energy is about and what's going on, will it be 
a completely new discovery uh, and totally new insight or the realisation that, yes, we've been missing something. Mm. Um, two slightly different things there. <clears throat> My guess is it will be something completely new because yeah. so many turns have been uh, up- upturned with a glancing blow at the nail. Can I mix metaphors now? It's going to work, yeah. Um, but, you know, there are very few stones that are left unturned in the in the world of um, of this kind of physics, if I can put it that way. Yeah. So it's got it's got to be well theoretically it's got to be something completely different and new and unknown to us at this point. Exactly. Mm. All right, we wait with interest. Hopefully, we hopefully we won't be a, a lot older by the time we figure it out. But uh, that's right. Time will tell. Uh, thank you, Michael. Lovely to hear from you. Lovely to hear from everybody. Thanks for your questions. Uh, it's um, it's always great fun. And if you do have questions for us, don't forget you can visit our website and you can click on the AMA tab where you can uh, type your question like old people do, or you can uh, send us a <laughs> send us a voice question uh, with the recording device built into the AMA tab, or you can uh, on the right hand side of our page. Uh, you can uh, click on the link there, send us your voice message, it says. Uh, so it's as simple as that. And we do love to hear from you. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from so that we can share that with the world and they can rob your house. Or not, or not. <laughs> no. Um, all right, thank, thank you very much again. And thank you, Fred, as always. That brings us to the end of another program, episode 280. Can you believe it? I uh, know. And listen, Andrew, no cough. Yeah. yeah, Peter. No cough. <laughs> A1 suggestion. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and I'll see you next week, I hope. Uh, I hope so too. Look forward to it. Thank you, Fred. See you later. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and Hugh back in the studio who's um, got himself uh, a new habit. He's into chewing gum, which means that his voice is completely distorted every time I try and ring him up. You know, it's been around for thousands of years, Hugh. It's not new. Uh, Anyway, uh, thank you for your company. Look forward to catching up with you on the very next episode. See you soon. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.